Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Stremming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. If you've been with me for a while, following me for any length of time, You've probably heard me talk about my protocol for crate training that I call Happy Crating. Happy Crating is available as um, a webinar that you can purchase from me anytime, and the link to that will be in the show notes. But this episode is not about selling Happy Crating. This episode is talking about happier crating. (laughs) This episode is talking about what happens when you've done happy crating, but you have crating challenges, they're not covered in happy crating, and you need to progress beyond what's available in that webinar. And so, first of all, if you don't know happy crating, I do hope that you'll go check it out so that you have a better understanding of what I'm talking about here. But in general, the happy crating protocol is all about conditioning calm in the crate. It's all about teaching dogs that the crate is a preferred place to relax. I don't do high arousal crate games type of things with crates with the vast majority of dogs. Certainly, I think that those games have a place. And I, you know, just recently mentioned that maybe that is more the route that somebody should go. But that's rare for me. Most of the time, I want dogs to think that going in the crate is a cue to fall asleep or chew a bone. I want them to think this in the same sense that I want to see my own bed as also a place to relax. Uh, sleep scientists talk a lot about, you know, arranging your sleeping schedule and your bedroom in such a way that sleep is encouraged and that sleep is achieved easily. And a lot of that is about removing context cues. Um, a lot of that is about removing, you know, cell phones, light, noise, things like that. So it's, it's very, um, you know, it's, it's, studied in people on an intense level. And I basically want to produce the same thing with the crate. I want the dog to go into the crate and feel immediately this sense of like, okay, it's time to relax now. Now, when I poll people and I ask what their biggest crate issue is, it is always that they are trying to create the dog in some kind of extremely high arousal situation and the dog can't relax in the crate in that situation. So understand that waiting inside the crate while something really exciting is happening is a trained skill that is not achieved by happy creating protocols alone. Happy creating protocols help set your dog up to relax in the crate at home at night, in the car, maybe on an airplane. 
And they do lay the groundwork for having the dog relax in the crate in more exciting environments like trials or maybe training classes. But there is more work to be done there. And so there's a reason that everybody, uh, you know, is kind of asking for help on that issue. And so I am going to do a new webinar. It's called Happier Crating. And I'm going to talk about that issue as well as some other issues that are really common. Refusal to um, enter the crate, refusal to exit the crate, other problems upon exit like it's super high arousal exits, the dog blasts out, maybe charges other dogs, maybe charges you, that sort of thing. Um, I am going to talk about all of those things in the webinar. And all of those things have the same stuff in common. So I'm going to go through, and this is what I think is the interesting part of the, the process. I'm going to go through my kind of behavior intervention process. So the first thing that I always want to ask is WTF, and that is what's the function? What is the function of this behavior? What is this behavior getting for this animal or avoiding for this animal? So all behavior is about avoidance or acquisition. The behavior could be about avoiding being put in the crate. That's maybe the refusal to entry. But it could also be about acquiring something. If the dog is going apeshit inside the crate because you're training another dog, that's fueled by their desire to get to that training procedure, that training process with you. And the inability to have it is causing these really big behaviors because what you're seeing is an extinction burst. The next question I'm gonna ask is WTP. What are the prerequisites? So I'm gonna say, what do I want the dog to do instead? And what does the dog need to know in order to do that? So what are the prerequisite skills? And have I trained those skills? And I've got a big hint for you. If your dog is really struggling being inside the crate while you're training another dog or while they wait their turn, you do not have the prerequisite skills for that behavior, most likely. I'm going to go through the prereqs in the webinar, and essentially it looks like this. If the dog can't stay on a station not being restrained in the exact same scenario, then you do not have the prerequisite skill to ask them to crate in that scenario. You can easily transfer a station to a crate if you have the right process, but being able to do this on a station is the prerequisite skill. The last question I'm going to always ask is if with two eyes. Is it fair? And this is a big one, right? It can be a cop-out. I think um, a lot of people might think that me saying it's not fair to have the dog have to wait in a crate while I train other dogs and he has to watch isn't fair is a cop-out. But I want you to know that I do tend to train all three of my dogs at the same time um, on stations. My puppy, Rhea, is only 10 months old, and so she can't do that in all training scenarios. So for instance, she cannot yet wait on a station while I practice Felix's weave poles or his dog walk or something like that. She certainly can't do it while I practice retrieves, but she can do it while I do Iggy's fitness routine. And that's, that's pretty exciting. It's just not as exciting as agility. And so I'm never asking her for things that are not fair for her. And the other thing is that I make sure that she's appropriately cared for and exercised. If she hasn't been appropriately exercised for a few days, then I am not going to ask her to wait her turn in those high arousal situations. I'm just going to leave her inside while I train my other dogs and then she can have her turn until she's appropriately exercised and I feel like she's capable of giving me that high level behavior. 
I also want to say that for some dogs, it's never going to be fair. For some dogs, their history um, in the sport of agility, their history of not being asked to control themselves might mean that they would need to stop doing agility for a long period of time for you to repair a lot of those issues because we're missing a lot of prerequisites. And so if you're not willing to do that, then it may never be fair for you to ask for what you're asking for. And I think that's always really important. I am going to wrap up the, the uh, webinar with two different cases. One of them is a dog that had some severe house training issues as well as confinement distress. And the dog came to me, I fostered the dog, um, and she came to me with those house training issues intact and with having kind of what I would call crate trauma in the sense that she was overcrated in people's attempt to avoid house training accidents, which is really, really common. Um, when you're really struggling with house training, the answer that you're gonna find from a lot of professionals, from the internet, um, is, more confinement. And when the dog has confinement distress, that actually makes everything that much worse. They're more prone to having accidents. They are less likely to actually do their business when you take them outside because they are experiencing such euphoria of finally being released from, um, from confinement that they can't relax enough to go meet their basic needs. And so I'm going to go into that kind of complex case with her. And then another dog that had you know, pretty persistent, what a lot of people would refer to as demand barking. I'm going to refer to it as needs barking, but essentially anytime the dog is in the crate in the home, the dog is barking maniacally at the person. And this dog didn't have a history of kind of trauma or anything like that. The dog just has this really, really persistent behavioral response of barking at one individual in the household when they're in a crate. For other reasons, the dog needed to be crated in the home, and so we had to figure that out. And I'm going to go through my process for intervention on that dog as well. So happier crating, it's all about asking what the function of the behavior is. It's all about making sure that we have trained prerequisites. And it's also about asking if what we are asking is actually fair. So I do hope that you'll join me for that. And of course, you will find the link in the show notes. And a few Patreon questions for you. The first one comes from Heather. Heather writes, are there different pathways to engagement? And if, if yes, do we need to establish some history with them all for maximum success? I teach agility primarily to pet dog owners training their first agility dog. As part of our foundations, we teach some of Leslie McDevitt's Control Unleashed games for voluntary engagement. I used to use different types of engagement creation games, such as recall games, where the dog chases the handler and is rewarded when they catch up. Basically, this engagement was instigated by the handler. I'm finding that the voluntary engagement work doesn't seem to be getting me the level of intensity of focus for the work as I'd like to see, and I'm wondering if I need to include other types as well. When I think about the principles at play, I feel like the handler-initiated engagement activities have a lot more play, movement, and fun in the reward strategy, chase and food, as compared to the voluntary engagement games, which are much calmer and primarily rewarded with just food. Looking for some guidance on when you might do each type or prioritize one over the other. 
Um, and maybe there's another type to include as well. So Heather, good question, um, intricate question. So let me kind of recap for people to just hopefully have everybody understand what we're talking about. So Heather is teaching kind of two different types of what she's calling engagement games. And I like Heather that you call one an engagement creation and the other just a kind of a voluntary engagement. So the voluntary engagement games are essentially that the dog is reinforced for volunteering attention to the handler and is typically reinforced for that um, with just a piece of food and sometimes released back to the environment. And then the engagement creation games are those games that I think in dog sports we often refer to as drive building where the dog um, is encouraged to act really big and do a really big thing and they are maybe invited to do that thing with the handler running away or the handler getting really exciting and then the dog um, jumps in and does the thing and gets reinforced. I want to say that I think the first thing you're talking about, the voluntary engagement, I think that that's true engagement training and that's basically teaching the dog to opt in. But I think you are confusing a couple of different things um, just in the sense that I think I would do it a little bit differently. So I don't see these things as necessarily separate. Um, what I see is that you've got one is kind of training behaviors and the other is just shaping attention. So if we're shaping attention, meaning the dog is, the dog is paying attention to the environment and then the dog turns to us and we reinforce, we're building that choice to engage with us. That alone will not make a sport dog. Certainly not. Um, that alone is helpful for all dogs. It's helpful for all dogs to learn that their human is a source for reinforcement in all environments. And that's all that does. It does not create intensity, just like you talked about. It does not create high intensity um, or fast behaviors in any way. And so that's where those kind of engagement creation games, as you're calling them, come in. But I'm just going to call those training. So for me, the first step is reinforce engagement. And then when you have it, when the dog is consistently checking in with you, then we're going to insert a little training session. So I teach the dog to chase me down for a reinforcer? Absolutely. That's training. I wouldn't necessarily call it engagement. I would call it, I am training you to chase me down because that is part of agility. So in the same sense that I'm training you to enter the weave poles with the first pole on your left shoulder, I'm also training you to chase me down and grab a toy. So I think those are not different. However, if you're looking to inject some excitement, I actually think that you answer your own question here, Heather, when you say, I feel like handler-initiated engagement activities have a lot more play, movement, and fun in the reward strategy. Couldn't you take those voluntary engagement games and change the reward strategy to involving more movement and fun as an intermediate step? So kind of go from that sort of boring single cookie reinforcer engagement when you have decent engagement change that reinforcer to a more exciting reinforcer and then when you have really active pushy engagement get to your training give that a try heather let us all know how it goes next one is from lindsay who writes hi sarah i'm pregnant with my third human pup and already feeling guilty about the break we'll have to take from rally barn hunt and other fun stuff I do with my two-year-old healer. 
Do you have any ideas for at-home games or exercises we can do to keep his mind and body enriched until we get back in the swing of things and to help him feel safe and fulfilled during the transition? Thank you for your wisdom and your podcast. So Lindsay, you're asking two questions. So question one is what can I do to kind of ease the boredom or maybe ease the guilt of not doing as much with your with the dog um, while the baby is an infant but then you asked about keeping the dog safe and fulfilled during the transition I think that's a separate question so the first question I would say most of these things rally barn hunt etc you can do at home however I recognize that having a human infant sort of takes every single second of your time that's where I'd be personally looking into somebody else doing a lot of that stuff with my dog. I'd be looking into maybe if I have a friend who can take my dog to barn hunt class or if I have a friend who might just come over and take my dog for a decompression walk. That's something I would really utilize my village um, if I were in a similar situation because the dog is only two years old, is a high activity kind of breed and will not take kindly to essentially not getting to do any of the things. You're saying this is your third child, but the dog is only two years old. So I don't know if the dog has been through a pregnancy and birth with you before or not. And that's kind of an interesting piece of information um, that, that we don't have. If the dog has not been through this process before, I would actually strongly recommend that you get it a consult with a trainer who works on this sort of thing to help that dog to help the dog with that transition as well as like I said use your village and try to make sure that your dog's life doesn't change too too drastically if that's at all possible I know that it it might just have to happen and if it does up that in uh, that in-home enrichment stuff do scent games at home do um, food puzzles other sorts of enrichment at home Get um, get the book Canine Enrichment for the Real World by Emily Strong and Allie Bender. Um, that will give you a lot of different ideas for what you can do for the dog at home. And essentially, you know, like I said, if the dog's not been through this before but is fine with your other two children, then I would be getting some help from a professional to make sure that you're setting up for success and just kind of ask trainers, hey, is this something that you do? Okay, and next one is from Brandy, who writes, Hello, Sarah, I'm listening to Recipe Training Podcast right now, and you touched on a topic that comes up for me, and i like to hear more about it. How much work and how much time does it take to train something realistically? I understand each dog is different, and trainers have varying level of skills and time. A question for the example is, what is realistic for training the recall? Effort, time, frequency, distraction, success. You get the basic recipe in classes, but what does the full picture look like? And can all onions, dogs, be caramelized or will some always burn if the heat distraction is too high? <laughs> Taking that metaphor just to the next step. Um, so, Brandy, interesting question. Essentially, especially when it comes to anything as complex as a recall, the answer is how long do you expect your dog to live? And that's how long the training takes. Most of those high-level training tasks, the reason that it feels like they're going to take forever is because they actually do. Recalls and like I said, most training, any kind of high level training is a constant work in progress. You will notice the dog wax and wane. You will notice the pendulum swing one way and the other. I noticed one of my dog's recalls starting to get not as snappy as I like it to be on one of the last walks when there was a high level distraction. So 
back to the drawing board, make a plan for the next few walks to lay down some heavy reinforcement for those recalls to put that money in the bank. Anything that is hard, anything that is kind of worth doing or worth putting a lot of energy into is always going to be a back and forth process. So in that sense, it's sort of like tweaking a recipe. So you make the recipe and then you decide, you know, I think I'm going to add more more of this flavor next time. Or you make a recipe and you think, you know, next time I think I'm going to add this to it. Or maybe this time I'm going to subtract this. It is more like, you know, just tweaking those things as you go, as your preferences change, as your world changes, as what's available to you changes. Perhaps you go to the farmer's market and they don't have something that you needed and you need to pivot. That's more what dog training is looking like, which is why the recipes um, episode really emphasizes becoming a chef for having your kind of best training results rather than blindly trying to follow recipes. How long does something realistically take? as long as it takes. And usually, if it's not a natural behavior, if it's like, and recalls are not, um, and if it's a high stakes behavior like recalls, it will take forever. Okay, and last one for this week comes from Pippa who writes, Hi Sarah, I absolutely loved the concept you raised of being the milk, but I'm struggling to always think of what the milk would be in a situation. Are there some go-to strategies that tend to work or a way that you uh, that you work out what would be the milk for a given situation? One situation I'm struggling with at the moment is that when we arrive for our decompression walks in our van, one of my three dogs barks very loudly in excitement from the moment I park until he comes out of his crate. He has to come out second due to position of crates. He is a rescue and really values running free, but he runs far and therefore there are only specific walks where he can be off lead where it is safe for him to do so. On the other walks, he's on a long line and I try to give him as much freedom um, in movement, but it's clearly not the same. And so essentially um, understand, Pippa, that being the milk only works if a certain set of parameters has already been met. And for anybody who's going, what is this milk business? Um, Essentially, it is a about it is a weird metaphor for essentially providing a consequence to the dog that isn't what they wanted in the first place it's not scary and it's not painful but it's not what they wanted okay so it's kind of like a kid is having a fit and a tantrum about um maybe a specific kind of donut that they want and instead of giving them the donut that they want you give them a bagel Um, it's not what they wanted but you don't want the behavior that they were doing and so you give them something else you they still have food they still have sustenance but you give them something else that will not work if that kid is actually starving and it also won't work if the kid has an expectation that they will be starved your dog is really, really upset about needing to get out of the car and needing to get out of the car quickly because of lack of freedom and and really valuing freedom. And I really um, respect how hard you're working to try to give this dog as much freedom as you can. But it may not be literally possible for him. I would look at your schedule and see if you can get out and do those off-leash walks every single day for a stretch of time and see how long it takes for that enthusiasm to start to change. I know for my dogs, if they haven't been out in a long time, I get a lot more vocalizing in the car. Now, 
the caveat here is that you are reinforcing the vocalizing every single time you let the dog out of the car. And I think you know that, which is which is where you're coming from. And you mentioned that you tried waiting for a break in the barking to give him food, but it's not working. And of course it's not working because food is not the function for that behavior. Running free is the function for that behavior. And waiting for a break in the barking is never going to be good enough. It actually needs to be cessation of barking. It needs to be the dog stopping barking. So things I've tried as far as being the milk, and again, needs have to be met. The dog probably needs a period of being satiated before you before you try this. And if that's not possible, then you may you may think about living with it, <laughs> kind of tolerating it. And you may think, or you may think about parking, getting some noise canceling headphones and sitting there in your headphones and waiting for the dog to be quiet. But I've also just tried changing directions. So if my dogs start to vocalize, I might stop and pull over until they stop and then keep driving. My dogs know where they are and they know when we're getting to the place, right? Um, I have turned the car around just like my mother. (laughs) I've said to the dogs, I will stop this car. Um, and you know, I'll do a lot of different things like that, but it also comes down to my time and what I can tolerate. So I will usually just park and wait and I will wait until they settle. And then, um, I will start to get them out of the car. That is not going to be easy for you, especially after this kind of period of time where the dog has vocalized and then been allowed out of the car and without giving you like a full blown behavior modification plan, which I cannot do here. That's my advice for you. But essentially my advice for everybody listening is that your milk will not be effective if you, if the dog is still getting to access the reinforcer ultimately for what they wanted. And it also will not work if the dog is starving in some way. So the dog is desperate for that thing. Thanks everybody for your questions. We'll see you next week. Are you on Patreon yet? It's where you can get all the extras for this podcast. The original tier over there still exists where the dog people of the internet provide the questions for the episodes and guide the content of the podcast. But there's a new tier. You can become a Cog Dogarino and get access to my training sessions with my own dog. So that includes agility, obedience, behavior, and stuff with my brand new puppy, Rhea, live guest chats, and more. So go to patreon.com slash Cog Dog Radio. The link is in the show notes. You don't want to miss out.